Strange Stories UK here, Series 4, Episode 11. We'll call this one The Wisbeach Fenland Hauntings, as investigated by Tony Cornell. Well, I've been away for over a month, being away longer than expected, partly due to last-minute Covid rule changes. Anyhow, back now with a ghost story for Christmas 2021. Depending on when I finish this, I may post another, a short paranormal podcast up for Christmas Eve itself. Well, please be advised that this podcast is lo-fi. It's completed in one take without any editing. I put these podcasts up to amuse myself and to tell the truth, I lose interest in them once I've researched them and written them up. So the actual podcast producing part is the tedious bit that I tend to rush through. So a word of warning, the podcast is going to be a bit of a ramble. It's not professionally produced. If you do choose to listen, then I hope you will not find it like listening to paint dry uh, as according to one recent review. Anyhow, these couple of stories come from East Anglia and were both investigated by Tony Cornell who was the local lead investigator. I've mentioned Cornell before as he's featured in one of the stories uh, in the Ghost Story for Christmas 2019. Cornell was a psychic researcher for many years and a well-known member of the Society of Psychical Research. He became vice president. Cornell was a skeptic regarding the paranormal, although he had investigated cases that he said defy explanation. And one of the cases is what we're going to look at here. Cornell's approach was to have an open mind and to use scientific methodology. Tony Cornell died in 2011. Well, there's some dispute over the definition of East Anglia, although the stories in this podcast are set in the Fenland region of East Anglia. In ancient times, there was a huge flooded plain on the east of England, about 70 miles long and 30 miles wide, called the Fens. Six rivers and a number of streams meandered their sluggish way through to the sea, through the Fenlands. The Fens was a forbidding territory of bogs and marshes, shallow lagoons. It was a mysterious place with a flickering will-o'-the-wisp, ignited marsh gas, and malaria which caused strange pains and visions. Although the area teemed with fish and fowl, many feared it as the abode of evil spirits and evil people. Few people lived there, save outlaws and survivors of defeated causes, such as the Iceni tribe and Herowid the Wake, who made their last stands against the Romans and the Normans in their Fenland stronghold. Over the centuries, starting with the Romans, the area was gradually drained and cleared. The land was reclaimed for agriculture. It was Dutch engineers who in the 17th century that made the major difference, although often when they had drained the land, it dehydrated and shrank further below sea level. A series of waterways and pumping stations keep the land free of flooding. Today, and at this time of the year, the fens are flatlands of brown fields stretching for miles unrelentlessly through the landscape with occasional hills that would become islands if the lands flood, but they don't because of the water management schemes that are in place. 
<laughs> the two stories uh, we're looking at in this podcast were set in Wisbeach. Wisbeach, an ancient Cambridgeshire Fenland town bordering Norfolk and Lincolnshire. Um, it's referred to as the capital of the Fens. I was staying in a water tower at Sandringham in Norfolk a few years back and visited Wisbeach for the only time. It was about half an hour's drive away. It was an agricultural dependent town. It had a former port on the area of the, on the river, the River Neen. I found it a pleasant town to visit with some impressive Georgian buildings, although it was a bit run down in places. I find it amusing that the Reverend W. Audrey is a famous Wisbeach resident from the past. He was the vicar of a nearby village and he was the creator, of course, of Thomas the Tank Engine. Although there are no longer any trains in Win uh, going to Wisbeach, the line was taken away in 1968. I'm not sure how many towns this size do not have rail access, and can't be many. The nearest train station to Wisbeach is about 10 miles away. In my diary, when I visited Wisbeach, I wrote about a rat migration in the area, a swarm or a mischief, as it's apparently called, of rats turning the ground black as they made their way from one place to another, as reported in a local newspaper. The article said that a person on a bicycle was bitten on the leg by rats as they crossed the road. The first Wisbeach story to consider is Hanneth Hall, which is a farmhouse formerly known as Sparrow's Nest until purchased by Jonathan Hanneth in 1812. He renamed it to Hanneth Hall. It's found near Tide St Mary's, about four miles north of the town of Wisbeach. The actual address is Hanneth Hall, Hanneth Road, Tidgate, Cambridgeshire, P135ND. The house sold in March 2021, it being sold for the first time in over a hundred years. It was described as a home with a past. It was sold for about half a million pounds, but it needed a great deal of work. But even so, I thought it a bargain. The location is half a mile from Tidgate, a hamlet on the A1101 road, a mile from the village of Tid St Giles. I've put a photograph on the Facebook site showing how close the house is to the drainage called North Level Main Drain, which feeds into the River Neen. The story starts when Derek Page moved to Hanneth House in 1957. Page became well known in the area. At the time he was a businessman and a Labour Party candidate, waiting for the next general election. Page became a Member of Parliament for Kings Lynn, representing the Labour Party in 1964. It was a marginal seat, which he held until about 1970, until June 1970. He was well thought of as a politician and was made Lord Wadden in 1974, taking a place in the House of Lords. Reading an obituary for Derek Page, or Lord Wadden, he died in 2005. The obituary said that on the night before he lost his parliamentary seat, he was asked to pull out a winning raffle ticket for a charity draw. 
the winner was a blue ticket 33. The next day, Page lost his seat as a cons to his conservative rival, represented by the blue rosette, by 33 votes. Well, Page was well-known, well-liked and a successful businessman and politician. When he lived at Hanneth Hall, he was married to Catherine and they had a young girl and a young boy aged three and five in 1957 when they first met Tony Cornell. During a night in 1957, a journalist for a local newspaper had car trouble near Hanneth Hall and he was invited into the building as he waited for the breakdown assistance to arrive. While there he was told about strange goings on in the house. The journalist was Alan Wilmot who contacted the Society for Psychical Research to investigate. Tony Cornell was one of the investigators for the SPR, Society for Psychical Research, and he was also a member of the Cambridge University Society for the Research of Parapsychology. Tony Cornell was at the time one of the region's best known parapsychologists and the Cambridge Society was an affiliate of the SPR and a training ground for student researchers who were given permission to come and investigated cases for the SPR. Tony Cornell, who was later a Conservative councillor on the Cambridge City Council, was suspicious that this might be a publicity stunt of some kind, for some kind of political purpose, by Derek Page. But he was assured that it was not the sort of publicity that Page wanted. So in October 1957, Cornell was requested by the SPR to investigate the alleged haunting of Hanneth Hall. And between November 1957 and January 1960, Cornell visited the house on 12 occasions. On most occasions, he was accompanied by other members of the SPR and the Cambridge University group. That's the Cambridge University Society for the Research in Parapsychology. Cornell, des <coughs> Excuse me. Cornell described Hanneth Hall as a large brick-built farmhouse. I put a photograph on the Strange Stories uh, UK Facebook page. During 1957, the ground floor contained three living rooms, a kitchen, a washroom and a box room. The first floor had a landing, which the, all the rooms faced onto. There were five bedrooms and a bathroom. The hall dated back to the late 16th century and originally had 500 acres of land attached to the property. The same family owned the property since 1900, although it was rented out for much of the time, for example when Derek Page rented it. There was a local legend when Jonathan Hanneth, who owned the house and adjacent farmland in the 19th century, he left the body of his wife in a bedroom for a couple of months after her death and had her meals sent up to her by the servants. Hanneth must have lost his sense of reasoning at the time. One of the servants, a maid, was said to have been driven to suicide by the madness in the house and her ghost was said to have been seen in the passages of the house. Hanneth eventually had his wife buried in the garden but the legend was that nobody could sleep in the bedroom where her body had been kept. Cornell researched this story, but was unable to discover the origins or authenticity of the legend. He also found no evidence of paranormal activity in the house, 
before the tenancy of Mr Page, who took up residency at the Hall in August 1957. He left in January 1960. Plot spoiler, there was alleged unexplained paranormal activity in the house after the Page family left. The Page household in 1957 consisted of Derek Page, his wife Catherine Page, Catherine's mother and two children, a girl aged three and a boy aged five. Catherine and her mother described to Cornell a number of curious occurrences at the house. These phenomena were mostly auditory and nocturnal. Mrs Page told us that she had heard raps and thumps and groans and sounds like footsteps. Uh, The mother, who was referred to as Mrs R.H. by Cornell, said that she had several times heard at regular tappings from the upstairs rooms while she herself had been in the living room downstairs. One night at about two or three in the morning, she heard several loud crashes on her bedroom door and on another occasion, about the same time, she was woken up when her bed received a violent jolt. Mr Page, who was usually at home only at weekends, had never heard anything abnormal himself, but he told us that his mother had cut short a stay at the house because of alarming dreams that she was having. All of these experiences occurred in the months between August and November 1957. The following account is based on notes taken on visits to the house by those investigating and from sworn statements written shortly afterwards. The first visit by the SPR was on the Saturday night of the 16th and 17th of November 1957. Cornell was accompanied by Alan Gould, later Dr. Alan Gould, a psychology lecturer at Nottingham University, Mr. Murray, who was secretary of the Cambridge University Society, and Mr. Brotherton, who was a member of the same group. They arrived at about 10.30 in the evening. Also arriving at the house at roughly the same time was Mr. Alan Wilmot and two of his friends, a Mr. Trumpus and a Mr. Perryman. The group were welcomed into the house by Mrs. R.H., as the pages did not return until about 11 o'clock. The children were asleep in their bedroom. Cornell and the rest of the group inspected carefully the inside and outside of the house. At around midnight there was an Ouija board session in the living room. Cornell explained that the Ouija board session was a method whereby he could gather all the occupants of the house and watch them. It was a method that he often used to start an investigation. During the Ouija's uh, board session, Gould stationed himself upstairs in the gallery outside the door of bedroom A, where in the past rapping noises had been heard. And at eight minutes past midnight, he heard a sharp snap from inside the bedroom, the door which was open. He set the noise down to thermal changes and did not investigate. But about two minutes later, he heard a sound like someone with carpet slippers softly ascending the stairs. The steps ceased before reaching the top of the stairs. Gold went to the stairs and found no one on them. He concluded that he must have misheard and misinterpreted noises from downstairs. And about half past twelve, Gold himself went back downstairs. 
At about 1.25am, while the others were still engaged in the Ouija board session in the living room, Cornell and Gould went to bedroom A and searched it using their torches. There wasn't any electric lighting in the room. The room was being used as a furniture store. It was a large room. It was the largest bedroom in the house. In the part of the room near the door of bedroom A, there were several large packing cases. These were investigated and found to contain books and small items of furniture. There was also a large chest of drawers. There were dining chairs stacked on top of the packing cases. In the middle of the room, which was relatively clear, uh, there were two mattresses lying end to end. There was a dismantled bed leaning against the wall next to the window facing out to the front of the house. Cornell and Gord each lay down on a mattress and turned off their torches for a few minutes. Uh, a few minutes later they heard gentle taps coming from the bedroom floor. When they turned their torches back on they could see nothing but bare floorboards. When they turned off the torches again the rapping started again. They tried to communicate with the rapping noises, suggesting one rap for yes and two raps for no. The rapping became louder and moved towards Cornell. He was able to put together a story by asking questions to the rapping. The rapping claimed to be a woman who had been murdered in the house in 1906. She answered leading questions readily but could not spell out coherent messages. They then heard a series of six or seven loud knocks coming once again from seemingly below the floorboards in the middle of the room. They grew so violent that Gord flashed his torch in their direction and the rapping ceased instantly. They could see nothing to account for the rapping noises. Meanwhile, the Ouija board session finished at about 1.45 and the reporter and his two friends left the house to return to their homes in Wisbeach. Murray and Brotherton came upstairs and they also heard the rapping noises. They ran downstairs and found that Derek and Catherine Page and Mrs R.H. were sat around the table in the living room, so they could not have been responsible for the rapping. Murray and Brotherton then went into the washroom, which was the room below bedroom A, and the rapping continued. During this time, Cornell and Gord also went downstairs to search the washroom with regard to the rapping. When they returned to bedroom A, they discovered a wooden dining chair that had been stacked on the packing cases was now lying on a mattress about five feet from its original position. Cornell picked up the chair and returned it to its original position. But as he left the room with Gold, the chair fell down again, this time just falling to the floor rather than being projected. The time now was ten past two in the morning and the rapping continued and it could be heard by those that were downstairs as well as upstairs. Murray was now asking questions to the rapping, which seemed to confirm some of the information that had been obtained by Cornell in Gould. For example, Murray asked the month of the rapper's death and heard 11 raps, and when asked for the day, there were 16 raps, making him think that it was the 16th of November. Cornell continued to try to communicate with the rapping, and when the rapping stated, started to approach him as he lay on a mattress, he turned the torch on and the rapping stopped again, instantly. Cornell tried to ascertain the rapper's age at death but obtained contradictory answers.
At about 2.15, the journalist and his friends returned to the house as their car had broken down. Again, some way from the house. Mr Page offered to drive them back to Wisbeach and they left about 2.20am. During this time, the rapping continued. At 3.45am, Cornell, Gould and Murray all returned to bedroom A. Gould walked into the room first. Murray followed and Cornell came in last, slamming the door shut. As he did so, there was a short rattle and when the group turned, they saw a brass toasting uh, fork about 18 inches long had been thrust behind the metal plate to which the door bolt was attached. One of its prongs was inserted through the iron loop in which the, in which the bolt should have run, in effect bolting the group into the room. They removed the toasting fork and sat down on the mattress. The rapping by this time had grown fainter and soon stopped completely. They left the room and settled down for a few hours asleep. On waking and during daylight they searched the room and the house but could find nothing to account for the phenomena witnessed the previous night. The second visit was on the Friday night on the 21st and 22nd of November 1957. The group for this visit was Cornell, Alan Gould again and Murray but this time they were accompanied by uh, Mr A Hickling and Mr I Hacking who were both members of the Cambridge University group. They arrived at about 11.30 and again Mr Wilmot and his two friends were present. Cornell and his group were carefully monitoring the Wilmot group's movements. Cornell never made it clear why Wilmot and his friends attended. I suppose it was because they wanted to write a story for the local newspaper. Cornell and his group were more careful during this visit. They carefully searched the house and sealed the washroom below bedroom A so nobody could enter. They had now managed to access the loft and Hacking took his position in the loft above bedroom A. Cornell and Gould were in a position within bedroom A. Hickling and Murray stayed with the Wilmot group and the Page family in the living room. At about 1.30am, Cornell and Gould heard muffled rapping which seemed to come from the sealed washroom below. At about the same time, Murray said he heard faint rapping coming from the direction of bedroom A, although no one else that he was with in the living room said they could hear anything. At 2.20, Hickling replaced Hacking in the loft, and Hacking and Murray replaced Cornell and Gould in bedroom A. Hickling and Murray said they heard some muffled knocking. The watch was terminated at about... 10 minutes past 4. When assessing the phenomena, a conclusion was reached that although the phenomena experienced on the second visit was very slight, it couldn't be entirely discounted. The controls on the second night were far stricter than on the first. The occupants of the house had been gathered into a single room and the washroom and adjacent doors were carefully sealed. It was felt that not enough precautions had been taken on the first visit. During the first visit, Cornell's group had been too sceptical and had not prepared a plan about what they should do and check if any phenomena actually occurred. As a result, the times and events of the movements of people on the first visit were not carefully logged as closely as required in such an investigation. They did not examine the exterior of the house at all. 
they did not bring a tape recorder and failed to make one or two obvious tests of paranormal reality of the raps, like requesting, for example, raps on particular objects or a number of raps to match the number of fingers held up in darkness. There was no satisfactory conclusion about the toasting fork. To throw or even thrust it in the position would have been exceedingly difficult, but it was found that if it was placed behind the metal plate with its prongs just touching the bolting mechanism and the door was slammed, the fork could jump a little and jam into the bolt. They concluded that they were absent from the room between 2.45 and 3.34 and it was possible that somebody could have placed the fork into position to fall into the bolt if the door was slammed. They were unable to explain the first of the chair movements. There were no threads or other devices attached to the chair and yet it travelled several feet when they were sure that nobody had access to the room. When it moved the second time it merely tumbled over and may have done so simply because Cornell had not replaced it properly. The wrapping seemed to have intelligence. In general they didn't, the wrapping did not occur when questions were being asked of it. The, key, the wrapping came at an even tempo at a rate about one a second or somewhat faster and they were appropriate numbers to questions asked for example two for no and eleven for November. The intelligence however was crude and a search of the local church records failed to confirm any of the information received. Cornell wondered who could have been behind any trickery. The journalist and his friends had, were an obvious motive but for part of the time during which the knocks were coming from bedroom A, they were allegedly away from the house. Mr. Page signed a statement to the effect that he did not in fact that he did in fact drive them to Wisbeach at the time of the most concentrated rapping. Page and his wife, Catherine and Mrs. R. H. all signed statements that they were not in any way responsible for the phenomena. Cornell's group were convinced that the two children were too young to have been responsible and in any case they went into their room several times and found them restfully asleep. <coughs> Cornell had to assume that uh, inside or outside the house there had been a practical joker whose presence had not been detected. The house was carefully searched and examined to look for any evidence of a concealed priest hole or some other hiding place. Rooms were tape measured in a search for discrepancies in room sizes. In particular, the loft area was carefully searched. On the first visit, no additional entrance to the loft were found. On the second visit, they located a boarded up trap door opening for bedroom A. This was covered in spider's webs and obviously not been used for a considerable time. There was also a boarded down hole in the ceiling made in the children's room that had been made by electricians in the past. This was too small for an adult to access and was firmly screwed down and too high for a child to access. Cornell's group of investigators tried to replicate the sound of rappings. They had sounded sharp and percussive. Despite various and extensive experiments, they were unable to produce a similar sound. It was decided that if a person had been responsible for the rapping, they would have had to install some kind of rapping device under the floorboards of bedroom A. Accordingly, they stripped the bedroom and had all the furniture examined, and with the aid of a magnifying glass, every inch of the tongue-and-groove floorboards 
uh, where they had a junction with the walls of the room, were searched carefully, and they could discover no trickery. Cornell's team were convinced that the floorboards had not been taken up, but they they removed the boards that ran from the positions where they thought the wrapping had come from, and found nothing suspicious either under it or under the neighbouring boards. They then, in the same way, examined the washroom ceiling, which was likewise made of boards tongue and grooved together, and they reached a similar conclusion. Cornell wrote in his report that uh, their examination of the structure of the floor convinced them that any locking, uh, knocking noises or any rapping could have been made only by removing the floorboards from bedroom A or from the ceiling of the washroom below. No boards had been removed from either of these places. Finally, it uh, seemed faintly possible that the knockings had in fact been made on the outside of the walls, windows or windowsills. Cornell found that in the still hours of the night, a conversation of bedroom A was audible from outside the house and the flashing of torches could be made out and seen. Further experiments were attempted to determine whether the observers inside bedroom A were liable to confused knockings made on the walls and windows from outside of the house with the wrappings which they thought were made inside bedroom A. Each of the investigators sat in the same position as on the first night, with their eyes covered. Rapping noises were made from inside and outside the house in various places on the walls, windows and windowsills. However, no one made any major errors of localisation. So it was concluded that the wrapping was not made on the outside of the house. This conclusion being backed up by Murray, who was sure that the wrappings heard by him and Mrs R.H. came from the ceiling of the washroom when, that he heard during the first visit. It was concluded that it was very unlikely that the wrapping could have been produced by a practical joker. When the incident was reported in the Journal for the Society of Psychical Research, in 1960, haunting and poltergeist activity were considered passé. They were very much out of favour. There was a commonly held opinion that poltergeist activity was caused by house movements due to subterranean forces. As the Fens had a large number of drains and watercourses in that district, it was thought that movements of underground water were the most likely subterranean force to be at work causing the phenomena at Hanneth Hall. Cornell discounted this theory. He argued that there was no geological faults in the area and it wasn't an epicentre for earthquakes or tremors. He was assured by the Cambridge University Department of Geophysics and Seismology that there had been no seismic activity during the time of his visit. Cornell also argued that the apparent intelligence of the wrappings ruled out chance seismic activity. Cornell and his team examined the house for evidence for subsidence. There were cracks in the exterior brickwork which had been filled in with cement in the past. He thought that these had occurred about 10 or 15 years previously. The most recent subsidence was found on the northern side of the house. These could have caused bangs and creaks which could have been put down to paranormal activity. But the weathering of the cracks indicated that they were 5 to 10 years old. Cornell's team were satisfied that there had been no recent subsidence anywhere in the property. Cornell carried out experiments with wedging grass files in the widest part of the cracks and cementing glass telltales across the cracks in the plaster and bedroom A. During the time of him doing this, 
and uh, observing them. There had been a drought and fairly heavy rains, but there was no evidence of subsidence. It was suggested that uh, Hanneth Hall is in the area of the fens, that underground water could be the cause of the phenomena. Although I myself can't see how this would have produced the wrapping, as explained by Cornell. There was another legend of a smuggler's tunnel coming up near the house. Cornell searched the records and found no evidence of such a tunnel. Cornell searched for underground streams which could move water under pressure in suitable conditions such as heavy rain or unusual tidal flow. Cornell spent some time examining these possibilities but could no, not find any evidence of anything unusual at the times of his visit. Anyway, the land around Hanneth Hall was well drained and the house being between the South Holland main drain, which was about a mile and a half to the north, and the north level main drain, which is 200 yards to the south, which both flowed to the River Neen. Both waterways have dams and pumping stations controlling the flow of water. The pumping station's main function is to keep the level of water in the main drains at a depth of 10 feet. On each side of Hanneth Hall there are two other watercourses emptying into the uh, north level main drain. So the house has watercourses on all sides. So it's not possible that subterranean water pressure could build up to cause the phenomena at Hanneth Hall due to the land being flat and the water management systems in place. Guy Lambert, who was another very well respected investigator at the SPR had been mainly responsible for the suggestions that tidal pressure and water pressure was responsible for much of the poltergeist activity in the United Kingdom. Cornell tested all of Lambert's suggestions and was in communication with Lambert as they both knew each other well. But Cornell could find no evidence to support water being the cause of the phenomena. There is a lot of discussion and technical data given in the journal regarding the Hanneth Hall case, which I will spare you, other than to say that any tidal pressure was compensated by the pumping stations maintaining a constant water level. In any case, the water engineers of the Neen River Board discounted Lambert's theories also. Cornell was informed by Derek Page that after the eventful first visit, the strange noises which occurred regularly during the first few months of the Page tenancy almost entirely ceased. But there were other curious incidents. For example, on the 22nd of April 1959, Mrs Page saw an apparition of a small fair-haired boy aged between six and eight years of age in the box room. She looked away momentarily and when she returned her gaze the figure had disappeared. And on a July afternoon during 1959, she saw the figure again in the same place, as the head and shoulders appeared around the door. The figure was dressed in a white smock. It said nothing again before disappearing. There were no other witnesses to the sighting, and Cornell said that Mrs Page mentioned them to him rather apologetically. I think Cornell would have dismissed Mrs Page's sightings as a hallucination. During April 1959, Cornell bought a non-professional medium to the house in order to hold a seance in bedroom A. The alleged entity was contacted and gave her name as Elizabeth, and I beg one, Eliza Cullen, or perhaps Eliza Culler. The spirit said that it had made the raps to attract attention as she was looking for her baby, which was buried near a big tree in the garden. On further investigation, Cornell found no trace of an Eliza. Cullen or colour 
in the local records and the gardens which contained a number of large trees was not dug up. Cornell visited the house on another 10 occasions. One of the nights was the 6th and 7th of February 1958. That was the date of the Munich air crash that killed eight footballers in the Manchester United football team. And another night he visited was August the 30th, 1958, which was um, a date which coincided with the race riots at Notting Hill in London. The last visit to Hanneth Hall by Cornell was January the 26th, 1960, when he was accompanied by Alan Gould, who made ten visits in total with Cornell. During subsequent visits, unexplained noises were heard, but poltergeist activity seemed to be getting very weak. When analysing the case after the last visit, Cornell and those investigating with him felt the most significant aspect was the evidence for the intelligence exhibited by the rapping. The raps were heard simultaneously by both Gold and Cornell in bedroom A and by Murray and Mrs Page in the washroom. All four witnesses were agreed that the knocks were responses to questions. The longer sequence came in a steady and quite rapid rhythm and when an answer was completed there was silence until the next question had been posed. Inspection of the records showed that there were at least 15 series of more than two raps. Brotherton and Murray also heard Cornell and Gould communicating with the rappings in bedroom A on the same night, that night of the 17th of November 1957. Cornell argued that the inevitable question of good faith of the investigators would be examined. Cornell admitted that he seemed to be in a position to produce the phenomena himself and the same was true to a lesser degree to Gould being in a similar position. Gould admitted that there remained the possibility that either Cornell alone or he alone fate the phenomena although this would have been possible but exceptionally difficult. As regards Cornell, Gould believed that it was unlikely that Cornell would do so for the following reasons. When the rappings were getting fainter, at Gold's suggestion they held hands and touched feet and the rapping continued. Also the rapping came from positions that were well out of Cornell's reach. And if, for example, Cornell had a flexible rod hidden in the room in order to make the wrapping, the room had a lot of furniture and boxes stacked up and it would have been very difficult to produce any noise avoiding these obstacles. Also, when the wrappings were being made, Gold said he turned his torch on without any warnings and too quickly for Cornell to get back into position without him noticing any movement. Gould argued that both he and Cornell had their torches in their hands or within easy reach all the time and they would switch them on and off without any warning. Cornell was out of reach of the apparent location of the knockings and Gould so saw no sign of arrested movement on Cornell's behalf when he did switch his torch on. Gould also said that for a good deal of the time he spent in bedroom A his legs were under the same blanket as Cornell and he could sense movements made by Cornell. During the wrapping he sensed or heard no movement other than the sleeve of his duffel coat when he moved his arm to switch on his torch. Gould thought Cornell was quite shaken by the experience, as Gould himself was. Gould said that Cornell murmured a couple of times phrases such as, I don't believe it. Gould said that he had known Cornell for five years and conducted several investigations with him. 
He continued that never had he experienced anything like the events at Hanneth Hall. <coughs> of Cornell, he said that in general he is someone whose scepticism about such phenomena has increased greatly with increasing experience of them. Cornell said that at first he thought that both he and Gould suspected each other, but he was convinced after they heard noises after they held hands and touched feet. It wasn't, if it wasn't for that fact, he thought that fraud on Gould's behalf or his might have been possible, but very difficult. Throughout the phenomena, Cornell said that both he and Gould checked each other's movements and drawing attention to any noises that each may have accidentally produced. Cornell said that in view of the Salford poltergeist, as reported in the Daily Express of March 1960, in which the evidence pointed to children producing poltergeist phenomena, the children at Hanneth Hall would have to be considered as suspects also. But Cornell was of the opinion that they were too young, being physically and intellectually incapable of coordinating the manoeuvres required to produce the phenomena. The investigators had looked into the children's bedroom whenever they entered or left bedroom A, and they always found them restfully asleep. Apart from a window, there were only two possible exits from the bedroom, the door opening onto the landing and the other, a small opening in the ceiling leading to the loft, too small for an adult to pass through. Anyway, this opening had been, had hardboard screwed down tight. Cornell and Gould maintained that as far as they could tell, there was no explanation for the phenomena other than paranormal poltergeist activity within the house. The case for the Hanneth Hall poltergeist is well documented with the reports, the case notes being held uh, by the SPR and the journal is available for inspection in the British Library. Gould and Cornell were convinced they had encountered genuine poltergeist activity in the upstairs part of the building. Alan Gould and Tony Cornell published an account in their book Poltergeist 1969 as well as the 1960 SPR journal. The Hanneth Hall case caused controversy as many SPR members were sceptical of poltergeist activity at the time as a result of Lambert's theory that underground water and earth tremors were responsible for the activity. But as Cornell and Gould were highly thought of, having very good reputations, this resulted in some members of the SPR revising their previous attitude of scepticism regarding poltergeist phenomena, after Gould and Cornell shared their findings. The Hanneth Hall case could not be explained on this basis, and it remains one of the best attested post-war poltergeist cases in Britain until the uh, Enfield case of 1977. There have been mentions of Hanneth Hall over the years, and despite claims that the poltergeist activity has died away, there are still claims of people uh, that have lived at the house and experienced, uh, experienced paranormal activity at the hall. It's interesting that when the house recently sold, it was advertised online, and almost all the rooms were shown, and very impressive they looked, but there was no photograph included of bedroom A. Well, that was the first story investigated by Tony Cornell. For the second story, we find ourselves at 23 Wisbeach High Street in the town centre. For it was during December 1965 that Tony Cornell was approached by the Wisbeach local newspaper to ask if he would look into a shoe shop called Continental Shoe Repairs that was thought to be haunted.
The manager was having difficulty with his staff, who were sure that evil spirits had taken over the place. Cornell arranged to go to the premises on the 20th of December, 1965. Number 23 High Street is a four-storey grade, grade 2 listed building. It dated from the early 18th century but was refronted in the 19th century. The shop had a reception and sales area in the basement. The workshop was on the ground floor and the two floor was it two floors or three floors above served as storage area. Cornell met the manager, Mr William or Bill Heim, who was thirty one eight years of age. The two shop assistants were Margaret Roper, who was aged twenty, and Patrick Lee, aged seventeen. Hyam told Cornell about the phenomena at the shop and was not pleased about the publicity it was getting in the media. Cornell knew the area was riddled with underground passages which extended under the shoe shop towards the River Neen, which was some 60 feet to the rear of the shop. The river was tidal at this point, and Cornell thought that almost, though most of the tunnels had been blocked off, he would have to take into consideration water pressure as being a possible source of the thumps and odd noises that the staff told Cornell they often heard but could not account for. On the 22nd of December 1965, the Daily Mirror ran a story on the alleged haunting with the headline, One-Legged Ghost Told to Hop It. The journalist was Kevin Hunt, who wrote that a one-legged ghost was playing weird tricks in a shoe shop and had been given the order of the boot by Continental Shoe Repairs. The story told of a one-legged ghost that had first been heard hopping around the upstairs in an unused part of the shop. It had progressed to turning on the shop lights and the radio on and off and coming down the stairs. Mr Hyam, the shop manager, said that he would pull out all the plugs out of their sockets before shutting the shop. When he returned to the shop the next morning, the plugs had all been returned to their sockets. Mr Hyam was quoted as saying that the strange activity seemed to reach a peak when there was a full moon, but he did not qualify that statement. Hyam claimed to have found two stockings, both right foot in the chimney, in the upper floor. The Kevin Hunt article continued that the shop assistant Margaret Roper laid a trap for the ghost by sprinkling flour on the floor of the bare wooden boards of the top floor storeroom. She found a line of bare-footed right footprints leading to the window, leading from the window to the only fireplace in the building. There were no left footprints, hence the one-legged ghost tagline. I posted a picture, a photograph of this on the Facebook site for Strange Stories UK. It's not a very good photograph. It was uh, taken from the uh, the Mirror article. The shop manager called in the local clergyman to say prayers in the shop to cast out evil spirits. This was the Reverend T. F. Butler, who was the assistant curate at St. Augustine's. I don't know enough about it yet to give my views on what's causing this, Mr. Butler told the media. Mr. Hyam and his staff are obviously genuinely frightened people, and I intend to have another talk with them before deciding what to do. Which I suppose this would be some kind of exorcism. Cornell paid a second visit to the shop on the 29th of December 1965. 
He took a note of all the phenomena experienced by the staff and others, which included footsteps in part of the building that was empty, electrical switches and plugs connected to the lights in the basement that were unaccountably switched on and plugged in, a machine used to repair shoes that had allegedly been pulled out of Mr. Hyam's hands, witnessed by Patrick Lee. Footprints had been discovered in dust on the top floor, not a flower as reported by the local newspaper, and there were other similar occurrences. Cornell discovered that the footprints had been photographed by a freelance um, photographer, but he swept the floor clean afterwards, apparently to destroy the evidence and to obtain exclusive rights to the photograph. Cornell had already been contacted by BBC Norwich Television to ask if he was going to investigate the haunting, and he knew other media were interested. So during the second visit to the shop, he suggested to Mr Hyam and his staff that they should avoid feeding the press any more information, as the more information that they were given, the more the press would want. Some of the reports were described by Cornell as being of unparalleled idiocy. Cornell continued to be pestered by the media, and when he phoned Mr Hyam, he was told that the press were coming in the shop every day asking questions. Hyam also said that his staff were too frightened to go up to the second and third floors of the building. Between Hyam and Cornell, they decided it best to leave any investigation until the end of February 1966, by which time it was hoped that the media interest would have been distracted elsewhere. However, on February the 11th, 1966, Cornell got a telephone call from Mr Hyam. He said further events had taken place and his staff wanted the investigation to be carried out as soon as possible. Cornell visited on February the 14th, finding the staff seemed very nervous and he was given a list of new phenomena. This included the workshop door being slammed shut on several occasions when there was no one present, a metal door handle turning by itself, the upstairs toilet flushing when there was no one upstairs, lights switching on by themselves, boxes moving by themselves, and a James Goodrum, who was the boyfriend of Margaret Roper, when looking for a ghost with some of his friends, they, he claimed to see an apparition coming down from the upstairs staircase. They did not investigate as they all ran away from the vision. Mr Hyam claimed that he had the vivid impression of something jumping on his back when he was coming down the stairs from the top floor after investigating unaccountable noises one afternoon in January. Footsteps were heard on several occasions coming down the stairs. And finally, after a power cut on the high street, lighting was seen in the building of number 23 when the rest of the street was in darkness. The building had now gained the reputation of being haunted and this caused Cornell to prepare for his investigation. Cornell got a team together from the Cambridge University Society of the Parapsychical Research and prepared for a full-scale investigation for the 17th of February 1966. The team would use as much equipment as possible to check for house movements as a likely cause of the noises. Cornell briefed his team to look for any psychological as well as paranormal clues. The investigation team consisted of Mr Stevenson of the Society of Psychical Research and four undergraduate members of the Cambridge Society. That was a Mr 
Micklewait, a Mr. Demon, a Mr. Fieldsend, and a Mr. Baker. When the team arrived at the shop ready to investigate, they discovered that the media had been tipped off and they were waiting outside. It became clear to Cornell that he would have to include them somehow. Before inv interviewing the staff before the investigation, Cornell had a lengthy discussion with George Wells, a reporter for the Daily Eastern Press, who had first drawn public attention to the case. He gave an independent account of what had been reported since the story broke. Wells thought that the story, or the case, was mainly the outcome of nerves on part of the staff, and it was being greatly exaggerated. The only phenomena he thought was difficult to explain was the widely witnessed fact that during the electrical power cuts, which had occurred during a cold snap a month earlier, the lights on the high street had been turned off, except for those in the shoe shop. Two spiritualists had visited the shop two weeks before, and using a pendulum they had diagnosed the place as being haunted by an old lady with a bonnet. They had recommended that a rocking chair be placed on the second floor for her to use, and further suggested that the odd knocking noise made by her and the other spirits were in competition with a large amount of noise being made daily by the machinery and the hammering of shoes in the workshop. Before the investigation got underway, Cornell interviewed Mr Hyam, who confirmed what Mr Wells had said, although he disagreed that the exaggeration or the nervousness of the staff were the cause of the phenomena. Hyam went through again the latest phenomena witnessed at the shop with Cornell. So Cornell's team were planning to spend the night at the shop. Mr Hyam, Patrick Lee and Margaret's boyfriend, Goodrum, were all waiting all wanting to spend some part of the night during the investigation. BBC and Angular TV wanted to film the night's vigil. Cornell realised that his team were not going to be able to do anything until the TV team had been given interviews. It was agreed that the investigators would prepare and set up the equipment while Cornell gave a television interview in the basement. The team drew up plans of the building and confirmed that all the Windows were sealed, so there was no way into the premises other than through the glass-plated front door, which allowed access to the basement as well as to the ground floor workshop. The ground floor workshop had a lockable door so that the building could be locked up and customers could still visit the basement, which was the shop. This allowed the team to confine the TV teams and the press reporters to the basement while all the equipment was installed. A tape recorder was set up on the first floor with a second microphone to monitor the workshop below. Another tape recorder was placed on the second floor with another microphone recording the top floor where the footprints had been found. Two thermometers were placed on each floor, one in a corner to obtain a reading unaffected by drafts and the other in the central position in each room. There were six strain gauges screwed into the ceiling and wooden floors two per storey, to determine if there was any movement of the building before or after the high and low tide in the nearby River Neen. Six expansion gauges were also rigged up on the second and third floors. These were designed to record any distortion of the walls, the ceilings or the floors. A 40-pound weight was strung with piano wire from the second floor ceiling and arranged on a swing and a height of six inches above the floor,
Attached to the weight was a pencil in contact with a vertical piece of paper which would record any jumps to the building. Coarse granulated sugar was sprinkled on the steps leading from the second floor to the third floor and also on the stairs connecting the workshop to the first floor. This allowed the team to isolate the first and second floors from the press in the basement or from any other intruder. This would protect equipment for any interference without personally guarding it. All the stair handrails were dusted with soot in order to record any handprints. In photographic coverage was provided on all floors. The investigators, the three investigators, each had a camera and a flash to record anything that happened. On the top floor, there was a camera and a flash mounted on a low-level tripod with a long shutter release cable down to the second floor tea room. The TV personnel and others in the basement were not told of any of the plans of the investigating team, although the purpose of all the equipment was explained to the media and they had filmed it before the sugar and soup was laid down. The press and others were left in the basement while Hyams and Lee of the shop staff and Goodrum were allowed to work with the investigation team. The investigators began their work at 10 minutes past 2 in the morning. Hyams left soon afterwards, but Patrick Lee went with Cornell for the first watch on the top floor. Cornell said that uh, Patrick Lee was very nervous and talked a great deal. Throughout the night the temperature readings were taken and they asked the press several times to be quiet as the sound of their voices were transmitted up to the second floor by an unused elevator shaft. This provided a clue to the noises that Margaret Roper reported that she heard when she was alone in the basement. At 10 minutes past 3 in the morning, Stevenson reported that he could hear sharp tapping coming from the workshop or the first floor staircase. Fieldsend and Demon heard the tapping instinctively and switched the tape recorder to maximum recording to try to catch the sound. These taps were investigated but their source could not be pinpointed to uh, any of the investigation team. At 3.45am dull noises of a low frequency were heard from the top floor which Patrick Lee and Cornell had left during the uh, efforts to trace the previous tapping. The dull noises went on for about three minutes, but could not be pinpointed either. They seemed to reverberate from the top floor. Although a search provided no explanation, Cornell said this caused two people who should remain nameless to say that they would not take their allotted spell alone on the top floor. I suppose this must have been a couple of the Cambridge students. Got frightened. Stevenson and Cornell took a position on the top floor but did not hear any noise while they were there. After half an hour they went down to check the gauges and have a cup of tea. At 4.46am thumping noises seemed to be coming from the top floor again which lasted for about five minutes. A search was made and the gauges checked again without result. A possible explanation being apparent later in the morning when they were told that a garbage truck had been loading up heavy containers at the back of the shop at about 5am. No further inexplicable noises were experienced during the next two hours. At dawn there was a search of the backyard and outside of the shop. The team had breakfast in a restaurant at 8.15. Mr Hyam arrived at the shop at about quarter to nine. The team packed up their equipment. They took photographs and told the press they could find nothing that suggested 
the shop and building were haunted. Cornell's team departed for Cambridge at about half past eleven. Cornell said that the fact that an investigating team, more often than not, did not encounter anything paranormal, is not particularly surprising, as hauntings are often sporadic over weeks or months with nothing happening, so a single night's vigil is unlikely to capture them. On the other hand, he said, if there is indeed entities behind the phenomena trying to communicate, why do they not show themselves to investigating teams who constitute a particularly willing audience? In the case of the Wisbeach shoe shop, the investigators did hear some inexplicable taps and thumps, but it was nothing like the effects reported by the staff. Cornell was of the opinion that the things that the staff had thought paranormal had perfectly normal explanations. He thought that the noises heard by the shop assistant Margaret could well have been produced by autistic peculiarities when the shoe shop repair machine was turned off during the lunch break. The sound of people walking on the pavement above the basement could be heard very distinctly, but not coming from the front of the shop, as one would expect, but down the service elevator shaft in the northwest corner of the basement. This was the same area from which Margaret said she heard all the noises coming and she presumed and animated from the now empty top floors of the buildings. The hearing of footsteps, the search for their cause and the discovery of footprints in the dust was a trigger that started the chain of events that made people think that the shop was haunted. The bare footprints being the outstanding piece of evidence. But most of the other effects could have been explained by nerves and imagination. For example, Margaret was the only one that experienced hearing the workshop door slam, and on further questioning, it revealed that this did not happen several times as first stated, but only once. So Cornell thought it's possible that a gust of wind could have been responsible, as the front door was open and the tea room back window was open upstairs, and this would have produced a draught. On further probing from Cornell, it was revealed that Patrick Lee did not see the drill stopper machine dashed out of Mr. Hyme's hand, as originally stated. And Patrick did not see the box and paper move, or the door handle depressed, or the lights go on and off in the tea room. It seemed that Patrick was playing up to the local media, who wanted a story, and once he had said something, he had to stay with it. I would suppose that Cornell took into consideration that Patrick was just 17 years of age and had an overactive imagination. Patrick insisted to Cornell that he'd heard the toilets flush upstairs at least once and thought that the sounds behind the shop workshop door um, and steps on the stairs were real. He had heard them. Cornell doubted Patrick and Hyam could have heard noises of a low level as claimed such as rustling paper and a crinoline dress while working in the workshop. The busy high street passed within feet of them and the noise of the shoe hammering and shoe burnishing machine were constant. Cornell thought that some form of collective expectation made the shop staff believe that the shop was haunted. Cornell seemed to find John Goodrum's experience quite amusing. John claimed to see a figure descending the stairs on the third floor while conducting a ghost hunt on his own. He told Cornell that he and his friends had not ventured too far up into the top of the building as they were short on flashlights and they did not want to turn the main lighting of the shop on so as to attract the attention of people passing by in the street. 
After seeing the ghost or the figure, his friends were too frightened to search the premises. I assume that he and his friends were conducting their investigation either with the permission of Mr. Hyam or while he was out of the shop. I suspect the latter. Cornell was also of the opinion that the manager, Mr. Hyam, who had the only keys to the building and exhibited an air of calm, but to Cornell it seemed that uh, the shop's haunting and all the re resulting publicity had convinced him that he had ghosts or poltergeists on his premises. And he was revealed when Cornell's team, team of experts to Hyam's mind, said that there was no evidence of paranormal activity. Mr. Hyam was able to exercise his mind and that of his staff, and it's significant to Cornell that there were no further incidents blamed on paranormal causes after his investigation. Cornell admitted that there were some elements that seemed to defy explanation, such as bare footprints in the dust, the lights in the shop during a power cut, plugs being put in the sockets and lights turning off, the flushing of toilets, and the appearance of half-eaten sandwiches, which were not there when the shop was locked up by Mr Hyam for the night. Cornell had talked to the local journalist George Wells, who knew everything concerning Wisbeach at the time. He told Cornell that there was a local criminal from a well-known Wisbeach crime family who at that time had escaped prison and had been incited in the town centre during the supposed haunting. He was hiding somewhere in the Wisbeach town centre area and Cornell wondered if he could have found refuge in the top floor of the shoe shop. How he would have got into the building, perhaps through an upper back window, is unknown. Although on further investigation Cornell discovered that the escaped criminal did have links with the shop. I think anyone who knows a building well knows how to get inside it. As a child I knew where to hit a window frame to jolt out the metal bit that kept the window in place in my home if I needed to get an entrance. Cornell said that when he went back to Wisbeach 24, hour, 24 years later in 1989 he called in at the local newspaper to meet up with George Wells again. Cornell was told that Mr Hyam left the shop later in 1966. He remained convinced that the shop was haunted. Wells also told of a local rugby football team that decided to spend a night at the shop as part of a rugby ghost watch. But they all left after a couple of hours, but maybe they just got bored. The shop has since been completely refurbished a couple of times. It was an Alliance Leicester building but at present it is a bakery called Simply Sweet Bakery and Coffee Shop and there have been no further reports of paranormal activity. Well, as we're in East Anglia, I thought I would include another short story, especially as it involves Anglia television and it features Tony Cornell yet again. This story is about Morley Old Hall, which according to Google... Morley Old Hall is a historically listed moated manor house built in the 16th century in the village of Morley St Peter, 12 miles from Norwich in the county of Norfolk. So this is about 50 minutes away from Wisbeach. The hall is a 16th century manor house enclosed by a medieval moat close to the village of Wymondham. The hall was owned, amongst others, by the stepfather of Diane, the Prince of Wales, a subject of an earlier podcast by me. 
Judging from all the wiki reports, the hall was virtually derelict and a wing had reportedly collapsed into the moat, although it has since been repaired. The hall has been linked to various paranormal incidents. Cornell thought that it was because the hall had Tudor architecture, wooden staircases, mullioned windows and a spacious overgrown grounds, which were almost the people's idea, ideal idea of a typical haunted house. <coughs> the house has now been restored and looks very impressive. It's a hotel and an events venue. I don't think that there is any suggestion now that it is haunted. Tony Cornell was asked to act as an advisor for a television show for Anglia Television to demonstrate the practical investigation of an alleged haunted house. He was being asked to comment on Morley Old Hall near Winmendham, South Norfolk, as the he said the hall had no detailed history of being haunted. Cornell thought the hall's architecture, blah, 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 made it seem like the cliched haunted house. During the filming, Cornell was filmed walking around the building throughout the night, holding a powerful flashlight and attending to various bits of equipment. A local businessman who had bought the property was also present with his aunt, a Miss P, who was sure that the house was haunted by a lady in white, among other things. The evidence of the haunting was confined to one dubious sighting by a local man who had convinced Miss P. Miss P was so insistent that a white lady was present during the filming, which was in 1964, um, <clears throat> Cornell was saying that there was no evidence of anything out of the ordinary. In the end, Miss P had to be asked not to interrupt the concluding interview that Cornell had with Mr Michael Robson, the programme's presenter. It is this final concluding interview that became particularly interesting. The final interview took place at about quarter past four in the morning in the main first floor room in front of a large mullion window. It was still dark outside and the final scene was shot using six arc lights to illuminate Mr Robson on the right and uh, holding the audio microphone and Cornell on the left. Cornell commented upon various stories that had come to light immediately after it was known locally that Morley Hall was to be investigated for television. During the last part of the interview, when Cornell said that he found nothing to find the hall was haunted, the interviewer Robson is off screen and Cornell is seen head and shoulders only with part of the mullion windows appearing over his right shoulder. The show aired on the 24th of August 1964. Cornell said he saw nothing unusual at any point during the show. However, two days after the show, Angler Television telephoned Cornell to say that five people had either rung up or called into the studios to say they'd seen the figure of a monk standing um, behind Cornell on his right during the final interview. The technicians at Anglia Television ran the relevant part of the film at various speeds but saw nothing. They decided to broadcast the programme again in About Anglia programme at 6.15 on the 1st and the 8th September 1964. They did not say what the five viewers had seen. The announcer was to state simply that some viewers had reported seeing a ghost on the film. Cornell requested that no indication should be given about the nature or position or the time of the appearances of the figure and the viewers should be invited to write in 
and described what they'd seen. Cornell's friend Alan Gord accompanied Cornell to the Anglia Studios at Norwich to view the film. Cornell and Gord could see nothing in the way of an image anywhere, despite running the film several times at varying speeds. However, Cornell said that when the film was put on a small dimly lit screen of an editing machine, they eventually saw an outline of a face in the markings of the stone wall work that made up the mullion window frame. Cornell said that he was inclined to think that the very suggestion that the building had been investigated uh, as being haunted uh, created an atmosphere of expectation sufficient to make some viewers see what they did. Cornell estimated that a million people actually viewed the programme and only a small number actually saw anything. I think it was 27 that uh, wrote in saying that they'd seen something. An interesting sequel occurred after the network uh, sent reports to Cornell to study. Michael Robson, the programme's producer, called him without explaining why he seemed quite irritated and wanted the reports returned to him as soon as possible. He phoned several times saying he wanted to show them to a psychic expert who he would not name. It was not until 1975, 11 years later, when Cornell learnt that the psychic expert was the American author Hans Holzer, who wrote the book The Great British Ghost Hunt, devoting a chapter to the ghost on television to the actual case at Morley Hall. Holzer has been criticised for his methods and his claims. Anyhow, Holzer described how he was approached after a lecture in London by a lady who wanted to tell him about a haunted house in East Anglia. The lady was Miss P, who told him about Morley Hall television show. Miss P had consulted a medium at the College of Psychic Science in London and had been told by a medium who viewed the programme that he saw a ghost, a lady standing at one of the windows of the hall, and that a monk was also involved. This confirmed to Miss P that the story that she had actually been told by a local man living near the hall about a lady in white that stood looking out of the window of the hall was true. Holzer and Miss P accused Tony Cornell of being sceptical and negative. Holzer then launched a personal attack on Cornell, saying that he was not a parapsychologist with an academic connection, but merely an interested ghost fancier. Holzer argued that Cornell's explanation of the phenomena as mass hallucination is of course an easy way of coming to a conclusion. Holzer did not recognise the Cambridge University as being a serious academic institution. Holzer seemed unaware that Cornell and Gould had written a report on Morley Hall for the March 1969 issue for the Journal of the Society of Psychical Research. Miss P made claims about the history of Morley Hall and the alleged ghost. She said that the monk was the ghost of an abbot of Winmanham Abbey. This monk had gone mad and died in chains at Binham Priory, about ten miles from Morley Hall. Miss P was sure that this was Alexander de Langley, who must have been the ghostly monk. The white lady, she was sure, was Anne Sheldon, the daughter of one of the great supporters of Mary Tudor. All this information was obtained either through Miss P's researches, her psychic ability and from other mediums. Cornell made his views clear, saying that the misinterpretation by a small number of people of some vague markings in a stone window seemed to have created a widely repeated authentic ghost case, much 
the same as what happened at the ferry boat the ferry boat in case which I covered in the 2019 ghost story for Christmas. In conclusion, Cornell thought that it might have been the result of a camera malfunction or light reflection, an accidental double exposure or other factors involving photography which in turn fired the imagination of some people. I think the unknown Anglia TV programme is available online. I've seen it in the past. I'll try and find it and upload a clip on the Facebook site. Well, that concludes the 2021 Ghost Story for Christmas podcast. I'd like to thank Damselfly for the background music and wish anyone listening all the best for Christmas and the new year. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>